Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. And we had basically no money to do any of that. So we ended up moving back to Pennsylvania with the RV and staying in my grandparents' backyard. And at the time, it was like October, and it was getting pretty freaking cold. And I think it was like barely above freezing. (laughs) We were barely able to keep it above like 50, 55 degrees in the RV with the heater blasting the entire time. And then at night, like we would literally wake up like shivering, like huddled together. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Bill Widmer. He is an SEO expert, business consultant, and serial location independent entrepreneur who has founded multiple six-figure businesses together with his wife, Kayla. They built and monetized their travel website, The Wandering RV, while traveling the U.S. as full-time digital nomads in an RV. Using Bill's SEO expertise, that website now gets over 250,000 monthly organic visitors from Google and nets Bill and Kayla a multiple six-figure annual income. Bill, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having me, man. How are you? I'm good, brother. So happy to have you here. We are not in person today, but we are actually very close geographically, which is kind of amazing. We literally just found that out. I am based in Asheville, North Carolina at the moment doing this interview. And where are you? I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. So about an hour away. That's amazing, man. I have relatives that live in Greenville. I've been down there. It's a super cool city. And hoping you and Kayla can uh, stop up to Asheville at some point while I'm here and we can hang out and get some craft beer, man. Absolutely, man. Let us know when you're leaving the place so we know when we have to get there by. Definitely. We'll do. We'll schedule it and hook it up, man. And we'll uh, take a picture and put it in the show notes. That'll be awesome. Looking forward to it. Well, let's just start off kind of way back. I want to go through a little bit of your kind of entrepreneurial journey. And can you just talk a little bit about where you grew up? And as you're talking about that, what were some of your, as you think back, kind of entrepreneurial tendencies that you had growing up that ultimately sort of led you on this path? Yeah, absolutely. So... I think it started at a pretty young age. 
I started playing video games when I was about two years old and quickly learned that I have very different interests from most people. I know gaming is widespread now, but back in the day, it used to be something everybody got bullied and made fun of for doing too much of. So (laughs) that was a, a little part of my childhood. But that tendency towards things that take me away from the world and kind of into my own little head happened when I was very young. And when I was in my probably around 10 or so, my dream was either to become a video game programmer, every gamer's initial dream as a kid, or this is going to be a complete 180 from that, to open a pet shop where I sold you know, pet products and people came and got their own pets from the store. My mom was always, we always had tons of pets around the house. Like I think at one point we had five dogs, three cats, two bunnies, uh, some gerbils, a guinea pig, like crazy amounts of animals around the house. And she actually became a vet tech and worked with animals as well. So that's kind of where the animal side of things came from. I had a dog that I really loved when I was younger Obviously, that didn't end up happening, not even close to that, and I would not want that at all today, but the tendency started when I was really young, and I always just wanted a level of control over my life. Uh, From my very first job, McDonald's, at 16 years old, all the way up through my very last job, Starbucks, you can see I went very far there, (laughs) I always hated it. It was, I just hated working for other people. I hated being confined to a space for a set number of hours. And I hated being told what to do over every little thing that I did. Now, I I started at McDonald's, ended at Starbucks. My whole career was not just fast food. I also worked at GameStop at one point. I sold knives, Cutco. I don't know if if you ever heard of Cutco or not. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so sold Cutco. And funny story, back in the day when I was selling knives, I actually had lip piercings snake bites and really long hair that I straightened and I wore the same hoodie every day. So I just looked like this emo kid knocking on your door saying, hey, you want to buy some knives? (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine what that was like. But that was kind of where I really started cutting my teeth on the idea of actually being a real entrepreneur was in sales when I was doing Cutco. Shortly after Cutco, I started a business called 6-1 Promo which was just selling promotional products like pens with companies' names and addresses on them. And my two customers and only two customers were my mom and the professor at school. I went to Penn State who encouraged me to start the business. So I would say it failed. (laughs) But it also taught me a lot more about getting out and doing sales calls with real live businesses. It taught me about who is the person you need to get in touch with to actually sell And it taught me that a lot of the times the person you think you're selling to is not the actual person that you need to sell to in business. Does that make sense? For sure, man. So how did your trajectory progress this? So you went to Penn State, you became a Nittany Lion. And then from there, with regard to the, you know, post-college career path, you know, that we all get pressure to go on after we have our university experience. How did you sort of go the entrepreneurial direction? What was your next step from there? Yeah. So like I said, my professor encouraged me to start that promotional products business. It was a quote unquote failure because I didn't make any money. I lost money on it because I had to buy the promotional products to begin with to get started. After that, it kind of gave me this itch that I needed to scratch because I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I finally took a stab at it and I couldn't let one failure keep me from trying it again. 
So from there, I went into e-commerce, which was kind of really similar because it was still selling a product. I started drop shipping things from China and selling them on websites online. And I probably opened about three different stores in three different niches. Every single one of them failed. They all lost me money. But again, it was a lesson in business. I don't consider failures to be this bad thing that you should let set you back. I consider failures to simply be learning and stepping stones on the way to whatever it is that you're trying to succeed in. You have to fail. If you're not failing, then you're not doing it right. After the e-commerce products is when I found my real passion, the thing that was really excited about that really got me into the entrepreneurship and making money from home, which was freelance writing. I got my first ever freelance writing client. And this was the transition from e-commerce to freelance writing was because the e-commerce businesses all failed and I wanted to try something completely different and I found the site Upwork. So I went on there and just started searching about things. And I'd always been a really passionate writer. I'd always enjoyed writing. I was in writing club in high school and it was just something that I knew I really enjoyed. So I figured why not try getting paid for this? So the first client that I found, I reached out to probably like 50 different people and I only got one and it was $5 an article writing about insurance. (laughs) It was the most boring thing ever. It took me like over an hour to write each of these articles. So I was making less than $5 an hour, but I was so excited about it because I realized that I was able to get paid for doing something that I really love doing. For sure, man. That's awesome. And so once you established that and you had the breakthrough on the freelance side of things, the initial kind of light went on there for you. What was your next step and trajectory from there? So once I was doing the freelance writing, I had slowly accumulated more clients. I got one big client was in the e-commerce space because I knew a lot about e-commerce and they needed a content marketing manager for their business. So I said, it it was like some school event where they take you to an incubator and you meet all the different businesses. And, you know, if they find any good talent, they'll hire you or whatever. And I said, rather than bringing me on and paying me as an employee, why don't you guys just pay me as a freelancer and I'll do all the work for you and I can just do it from home, maybe come into the office sometimes if you need to sit down and have a meeting or something. And we can just do it that way. And then it'll save you guys money on taxes and whatever and, you know, less to worry about. So they ended up taking me on and I merged writing and e-commerce. And that was the first really big client that I had. It was like, you know, it was like a couple hundred bucks a month or something, maybe a grand a month. And it slowly rose over time. But it was enough that I realized that I could make some serious money off of this. And it kind of fed that fire to continue to charge more money and learn more about my craft. And then from there, I kind of hit a cap in how much money I could make from the writing because it was literally just freelance writing. So that's when I started learning about SEO and content marketing and blog promotion and kind of incorporated all of these services under one umbrella to make more money. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And then from there, let's get into sort of some of the businesses that you have built using those techniques. Can you share a little bit about that from there? Yeah, definitely. So once I was started learning SEO, I actually took a course um, by Brian Dean, backlinko.com. It was called SEO That Works. And to this day, it was easily the best course I've ever taken. It taught me tons about SEO. And I used that course to kind of commit myself to a goal. I said, okay, this is an expensive course. I don't really have the money to pay for it. 
But what if I start it? I do the payment plans every month, even though I don't necessarily have enough money to pay for it. Like I'd be barely scraping by with it. Use the information that I'm learning and test it out on our own site to see if I can make at least as much as I'm spending every single month. And then within, I think, four or five months, I was making that and then it just kind of skyrocketed from there. But I kind of skipped ahead in the story a little bit. This was after we had started the Wandering RV. So there's a couple of years chunk of time in between that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. And I want to go deeper into some of the SEO tactics. But first, let's talk a little bit about this RV lifestyle. And let's transition to that first. And then we can come back and talk about the tactics that you use to build that site and that business. What got you into the RV lifestyle in general? How did you make that decision to start traveling full-time in an RV? And I would love to hear a little bit about what that lifestyle was like, but what initially led you to that choice? Yeah, so the reason that we started RVing, so back when I was in college still, I had just started dating Kayla. I was getting close to the end of my graduate degree and neither one of us enjoyed living in Pennsylvania. Uh, we both hated winters. We didn't really have a lot holding us there. And we didn't really know where we wanted to live. I knew I wanted to live somewhere warmer, somewhere sunnier. But we didn't know if that was Florida, if that was California, if that was Hawaii. I'd always dreamed of living in Hawaii. And we hadn't been anywhere. Like I'd only been out of the state a handful of times and it was just like very specific vacation destinations like that were very touristy. So we didn't really get to see anything. Oh, and we had a cat too. That was actually a big part of the decision was the cat, our, our cat Luna, because we didn't want to just keep him in a crate in the car for hours and hours on end as we traveled around trying to figure out where we wanted to live. So um, the next best thing was, hey, why don't we get an RV so that way he can roam out and about, still have plenty of space. We're not bringing him into unfamiliar territory every couple of days or weeks or whatever. And we can still travel around and see everything. So that's where the RV idea kind of came in. And right after I graduated college, we sold everything in our whole apartment, kept only the essential stuff that would fit in a, you know, 35 foot RV, not even 32 feet RV, and uh, just kind of took off. Wow. And then on that journey, when you were nomading around full time in an RV, what was that like for people that have never done that before? And and what were some of the highlights or lowlights or, you know, what are some of the things that stand out from from that adventure? It was awesome. It was very freeing. However, it was also extremely difficult. If you're not a patient person or if you're not the kind of person who doesn't mind like doing housework and stuff like that, it's probably not the lifestyle for you because you have to be so patient with everything when you're setting up the RV, when you're taking down the RV, when you're driving place to place, like you could crash into somebody, you could, you know, hit a curb, which I've done multiple times. You could bend things, break things, dent things. You can screw up your plumbing if you're not careful. Like there are so many little things to worry about that we all just take for granted in a home. Like your toilet, everything that goes down in that toilet has to come out and you have to make sure it comes out in the right place. So it's a ton of work. But that said, it is also extremely freeing and you can have some amazing adventures and stay in some amazing places. Like we stayed on the beach 
We've stayed in mountains. We've stayed with some incredible views. Like there are just so many cool things out there to see. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword in that regard. And also being a digital entrepreneur, obviously it's possible. You know, there's data plans, there's Wi-Fi, there's coffee shops, things like that. But it is a real struggle having solid internet connection on the road. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So then, okay, so you guys are nomading around in this RV. You're attempting to build this business, which at the time, was that primarily the Wandering RV website and trying to build and monetize that? Or were you also doing, you know, still the consulting stuff for businesses? And then, you know, what was that like? How were you able to build that or, you know continue on your journey, let's say? What was the next step in your business journey while you were doing the RV lifestyle? So the main source of income for us was our client work. We were still doing consulting, freelance writing, SEO, which by the way, Kayla was a teacher before I graduated. And I actually convinced her to quit her job and start freelance writing as well. So we were both kind of doing the same thing. So that was our main source of income. And it was mainly when we first started RVing coming from three clients, two of which were like 90% of our income. And the Wandering RV website was actually Kayla's idea. And we made it literally just to like share with friends and family the stuff that we were doing. Like we were going to take pictures and videos of all the different places we visited and just put it on the website so our friends could see it. Not, We didn't have any idea of like making money from it or using it to learn SEO or anything like that. It was just kind of like a fun little side passion project. Oh, and uh, also we were, because we weren't making that much money from our clients, like I said, our, our one client was only like a couple hundred to a thousand dollars a month. Kayla's main client was less than that. And then we had a third client who was like a hundred dollars here and there. It wasn't like reliable. It wasn't every month. And we did something called work camping, which is you literally reach out to different campground owners and say, Hey, I will work for you if you let me stay at your campground for free, or, you know, they might pay you minimum wage or something like that. And you can go to their campgrounds and do things like the one that we worked at, I was driving the truck back and forth because they had a river right next to their campground. And they had like tubing and kayaking and canoeing and all this different stuff that you could drive up the river. We'd launch you off into the water. So I would take all of the boats off and help them put them in the water and then launch them off and then drive back. And then we would just continually do that every day just because people wanted to go up and down the river. Right. And as you were doing this and building these businesses with the RV in the RV lifestyle, what would you say was your biggest business challenge or setback that you had? And how did you end up overcoming that? Our biggest setback that we've ever had in our entire life was losing me and Kayla's biggest clients. So two out of those three clients, 90% of our income was gone and we lost both of them within like two or three days of one another. And we literally had no wow. income. Like we were work camping and that wasn't bringing us any money. It was just giving us a free stay, but we still had to pay for the RV, for the insurance, for food, for you know our cell phone bill, for all these different things. And we had basically no money to do any of that. So we ended up moving back to Pennsylvania with the RV and staying in my grandparents' backyard. And at the time, it was like October and it was getting pretty freaking cold. And I think it was like barely above freezing most nights. And for those of you who have ever RV'd, you know that it's not very well insulated in there. So 
unless you have an RV built for cold weather, you're going to be freezing your ass off. <laughs> we were barely able to keep it above like 50, 55 degrees in the RV with the heater blasting the entire time. And then at night, like we would literally wake up like shivering, like huddled together. Mind you, at any point we could have went inside my grandma's house and like stayed in there. Like she had nothing against us doing that. It was just, we wanted our own home, our own place, even if that meant suffering a little bit. Like we didn't want to have to rely on her so much that we're literally in her house all of the time. Like, even though we were a major burden, I feel, you know, we, we were connected to her water, her electric, her internet. She was basically paying for everything for us because we couldn't afford anything. We still needed some sense that we had our own space, that we mattered, that we belonged somewhere. And not that we were just completely freeloading, even though we kind of were. So that was really, really difficult. And how did you guys bounce back from that? Like, I mean, both mindset wise, like when you were in that position and feeling all of those things, how did you bounce back from that mindset wise? And also then what were the business tactics that you used to take things from there up to where you are today? So at the time, I just threw myself into work. I worked constantly. Every second that I wasn't working, I felt incredibly guilty. And if I didn't work for like an hour or two, I felt like I hated myself because I wasn't pushing myself towards my goals and my dreams. And it was just a very mentally toxic environment that I was putting myself in. Like I just, it, my, my self-talk was not good at all. And that's actually around the time that I found um, the Entrepreneurs on Fire podcast with John Lee Dumas. And I just listen to it every single morning. One of my favorite things to do is go for a walk. I go for a walk pretty much every day, sometimes two, three, four times a day. And I just really enjoy them to kind of clear my head. And what I would do is every single morning, as soon as I woke up, I'd throw on my headset and I would just go for a walk and listen to one of John's podcasts. And over time, I started changing my inner dialogue as I listened to it. And of course, that's in combination with writing as many articles as I can, sending out, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of emails every day and every week, trying to get more clients. And at one point, I even started looking for a job, like I was looking for content marketing jobs in different states all over the country. I did a bunch of interviews, actually, I almost got quite a few of them. And I'm so grateful for that experience. If it wasn't for us hitting rock bottom like that, I don't think the Wandering RV or our business would be nearly as successful as it is today because it kind of put my back against the wall and forced me to do something about it. I was really miserable and depressed and uh, listening to that podcast and doing the work over time is what kind of got us to where we are today. It's, it's just changing that mindset and realizing that you're capable of great things even when everything around you tells you that you're not. That's awesome, man. So let's go into some of the tactics that you use to build the Wandering RV website from there to where it is today, which is getting over 250,000 monthly organic website visits and is also producing you guys multiple six-figure income. So let's Talk a little bit, if you can break it down. First of all, what are the primary ways that you monetize that website that it actually produces income for you? And then let's go behind the scenes and talk a little bit about the tactics that you use to build it to get it to where it is today. Yeah, absolutely. 
monetization is pretty simple. It's just ads on the site and then affiliate partnerships. We started with Amazon. They pay horrible commissions. Like the one month, I think I was looking at it the one year and we sent them over $100,000 in sales and only made like two or three grand that month. So (laughs) that was really discouraging to see and kind of got me to find ways around it. And we found other affiliate partnerships that pay better. And we just kind of went direct. So that was a big help in that regard. That's how it's monetized. And then as far as the actual strategies, it's 100% SEO. Like I hate social media. We do do Pinterest, but that's because Pinterest is kind of a lot like Google, like things stick around a long time and it doesn't take, you don't have to be on there every single day posting something new and trying to drum up followers and all this crap. It's kind of just like another organic medium. So SEO, the way we did it was pretty simple, actually. It was just create really epic, amazing content that's way better than anything out there and then build links to that content. And if it really is really amazing, epic content that's better than everything else out there, it's a lot easier to build links because when you reach out to people and say, hey, like I made this amazing thing, they're a lot more likely to link to it because it's obvious that you put in the work and the effort. And Uh, Another tip on that regard is don't immediately place ads or affiliate offers on a new piece of content, especially if it's like an informational piece that's just meant to help people. Like don't monetize that in any way until after you've built your links. So that way when you reach out and say, here's this awesome piece of content that I created, the person looks at it and they don't immediately see an ad pop up in their face or an obvious affiliate offer that you're trying to push. And they're a lot more likely to link to that because it is genuinely just a good piece of content. Yeah, I want to go deep into the tactical stuff here because we've got a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show. And I want to definitely sort of draw upon your expertise. And we can go pretty niche and pretty tactical and pretty specific on some of the different key areas of an effective SEO strategy. So let's just start with the content creation portion of it in terms of deciding which piece of content that you should focus your energy on creating and then how to create an effective piece of content. So can you just talk about that process first? Business owners listening to the show here and they want to start taking SEO seriously. The first part of that obviously is to create the right piece of content. So what's the process for thinking about that? Okay, so I'll just do an overview of my entire process. So when I'm first looking at a new site, and I'm going to assume that you have a website already. When I'm first looking at a new site, the very first thing I do is figure out, okay, what's going to make money? What are my affiliate offers? And then what are the keywords that I need to rank for that are going to be related to that offer? So it starts with monetization and keyword research. Once I figured that out, I can do a deep dive into the keywords and figure out, okay, here are the main keywords that I want to rank for based on search volume, based on clicks, based on, I know that it's going to convert. And then here are the supporting topics. So I like to create what's called a content hub or a content silo, whatever you want, uh, the wheel and spoke method you may have heard of before. It's essentially you create a cornerstone piece of content that you're trying to rank for a really difficult keyword. This might be something that's really informational, or it might be a money page. Just something that's that's really big that you want to rank for something that's difficult to rank for. And you create a skyscraper piece around that. So if you don't know what a skyscraper piece is, it's basically you do research on the keyword that you're targeting, figure out what's out there, and then just write something that's just insanely massively better. 
And by better, I mean more value uh, by more images, charts and graphs, original data, adding a YouTube video to your content, anything that you can do to make it more visually appealing, make the content tighter, not necessarily longer, but just better in that you get the most amount of value out of the fewest amount of words. So when I'm coming to a piece of an article and reading it, I'm not thinking, holy crap, this is a 5,000 word article. How am I going to get through this on some technical concept? I'm thinking, this is a long article, but it's written really well and it's easy for me to read. So even though it might not be longer than what's out there, it's written better. So once you make something that's way better as your hub page, then you make the spoke pages, which are all of the keywords that are related to your keyword that you also want to rank for. So I'll give you an example. We created an RV insurance guide on the Wandering RV. And we want to rank for, obviously, RV insurance. That's a really difficult keyword to rank for. So we created uh, spoke content, which is content all related to RV insurance. And it's different questions that people ask about RV insurance. It's different types of RV insurance. So we've got a travel trailer insurance guide. We've got insurance reviews of different insurance programs, things like that. It's all related. And each of those pages links to one another. And then they also link back to the main RV insurance guide page. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Can you give some examples of some of the tools that you use to do the keyword research and the process that someone should use for figuring out, you know, what that strategy should be for them? Yeah, absolutely. So I use a tool religiously called Ahrefs, A-H-R-E-F-S. And the first thing I do before anything else is take my website put it into Ahrefs, and then I go to, on the sidebar, there's something called the Content Gap Tool. You click on that, and then you put your three to 10 main competitors on Google, not necessarily your competitors in sales or whatever it might be, but the competitors who are ranking for the things that you want to rank for, and then place them in that Content Gap Tool. And it'll show you all of the keywords that they're ranking for, but you're not ranking for. And then you can filter it by keyword difficulty if you only want to go after the lower difficulty keywords because you don't have a high domain rating yet. You can filter it by the number of clicks or the search volume. You can filter it by the cost per click. So typically keywords with a high cost per click convert better because people wouldn't be paying as much for them if they weren't converting and bringing them income somehow. So I'll put them in this tool and then I'll literally go one by one through each of these keywords after I put the filters on and say, okay, is this a good keyword for me? Yes or no. If it is, then I'll add it to my list. And you can make a list right in Ahrefs. And then I'll go through hundreds, sometimes thousands of keywords. I'll literally, I geek out over this stuff. So I'll literally sit there for hours and hours on end just looking at keywords. But it doesn't take that long. Like you could do it within an hour or so and have like a list of 50 to 100 really solid keywords to go after. But that, that's where I start is that content gap tool. Okay. And so then once you get those 50 keywords to go after, what then is the process for designing a content creation strategy in terms of prioritizing where to start and, and so forth? What's the process? Yeah. So that list of 50 keywords, I'll break that down and prioritize it based on either is this going to build me links or is this going to make me money? Typically, is this going to make me money comes higher. But if you're a newer site with a lower domain authority, you want the links first. You want that domain authority. The way that I tell which of these things is going to make me links or money is I will literally go and Google that search term and see what the results are. 
And if I find that the results have a lot of affiliate offers on them or a lot of advertisements or things like that, I'll be like, okay, this is for money. And then if the results have a lot of just information, they're like guides or list posts or things like that, I'll be like, okay, that's for building links. And then I'll just prioritize them based on search volume and how much money I think I'll make off of it going off the cost per click and how much money I make off those particular affiliates. And then I'll make a list of, okay, here are the top 10 keywords that I really want to rank for right away, whether that's to build links or if that's to um, actually make money. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Can you talk a little bit more about domain authority, what exactly it is and how to build it? But then also, how does domain authority overall on your website relate to search traffic that you're able to create for a specific piece? So let's say, for example, your domain authority is relatively low at the moment and you use your technique to create a skyscraper piece. So you're going to create the preeminent piece of content on this subject matter on the internet and you're going to put it on your website, but your domain authority overall on your website is low. I'm curious how the traffic generation works with respect to the the skyscraper strategy, but then also the domain authority ranking. And maybe you can share a little bit about that. Yeah. So domain authority or DA is also the same thing as domain rating and Ahrefs. That's what they call it or DR. Uh, essentially, it's an overview of how authoritative your site is in Google's eyes, but it's not really in Google's eyes. It's in the tool that you're using. So it's not a direct like it's not like Google's telling you this is your domain authority. It's this tool taking its best guess at what it thinks your domain authority is. So your domain authority essentially is how easy it is to rank for keywords. If you have a low domain authority and you're trying to go after a keyword, you're going to need a lot more links to that specific page that you're trying to rank than if you had a higher domain authority. So if I have a domain authority of a 10 and I'm trying to target RV insurance, it's going to be a lot harder for me to rank for that without building a ton of links directly to my RV insurance page than if I have a domain authority of 60. So essentially, either way, you need links, and that's how you get a higher domain authority is through backlinks, whether that's to your homepage or the specific pages. But the higher your domain... I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Authority is the fewer links you need to the specific pages that you want to rank. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And then let's talk about the backlinking strategy. So if somebody is starting off with, let's say, a domain authority of a 10, as you mentioned, they haven't given a lot of attention to SEO so far. Maybe they've been in business for a while. They've just been not prioritizing an SEO strategy. So that, you know, domain authority is a 10, let's just say as an example. And they want to start 
using an SEO strategy. What for them would be the approach to SEO? I assume it's to start with one spectacular piece of skyscraper content as literally step number one, which is optimized based on the keyword research that you've described. And then once they have that, if that's correct, once they have that, then it's about a link building campaign. Is that the approach? And if so, what is their next step? How do they do that? Yeah, so whenever I'm doing a new campaign, whether that's creating a new hub and spoke like I talked about earlier or just a new article in general, obviously you find the keyword, you create the content, you make sure it's optimized around that keyword. So now you're talking about on-page SEO. A tool that I use for that, by the way, is surferseo.com. And you can actually go on there and put your content right into their editor and it'll tell you based on the other search results, they have more or less of these keywords they have more or less of H1s and H2s, longer or shorter content, and it'll kind of help you optimize it in that way. But once you've optimized the page, then I go right into link building. And that's a combination of promotion. So a lot of people will do some email outreach, they'll do social media outreach, they'll send a list, uh, an email to their email list and just promote the crap out of that piece of content. Naturally, that might get you a few links but it's not really going to move the needle as far as SEO goes. What you're going to really have to do is actually dive into the link building strategies. So the main ones that I use are guest posting. So you reach out to different sites and get guest posts on their sites. You write for them for free. And then within that guest post, you link back to the specific page that you're trying to rank, whether that's the new post that you published, whether that's your hub and spoke, getting links to all of those pages, or even if it's just building a link to your homepage, which Yes, they're good. They will help raise your domain authority, but they're not going to help that much in ranking specific pages. You want links to those specific pages that you're trying to rank. So guest posting is one of them. Podcast interviews like this one, people link to the, you know, you'll link to my website in the show notes or something like that. That's another way to build links. Email outreach, like broken link building, you find broken links on different people's sites you reach out, you tell them about it, and you say, I have this link that might be a good replacement for that. There's lots of tools out there, lots of guides on how to do that. There's a bunch of different link building tactics and strategies and stuff, but the main ones that I rely on are guest posting, podcasting, and uh, email outreach. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about, I guess, general parameters or best practices in terms of how many links you need to have coming back to your site. And I know obviously it's a lot of variables. We've just sort of discussed the complexity of that in terms of what your domain authority is. It's going to vary. But in general, as people are are going ahead to try to implement this strategy, how many backlinks do people want to shoot for? And I assume the domain authority of the site that's linking to you is also a factor. So can you talk a little bit about that and how people should kind of conceptualize their goals to, to try to execute this properly? So from a mindset perspective, I would shoot for getting a couple hundred links, you know, like it, it shoot for more than what you realistically think is possible. So that way you're still going to get more than you would have if you put your sites lower. But that's just like a goal setting mindset type of thing. But in the actual technical things of it, it's the number of links that you need depends on the keyword that you're trying to rank for and your website's domain authority. So I keep going back to this RV insurance example. Let's say it has a a difficulty of, I don't know, a 50. So it's ranked 1 to 100 and it's a 50. Ahrefs will actually tell you 
based on the other search results, how many backlinks it thinks you need to that page in order to rank for that keyword. And that's just in order to get in the top 10, not necessarily to get number one or two, which is really where you want to get because anything lower than that, and you're not going to get a lot of traffic unless it's a crazy high traffic term. But anyway, all of that to say, it really does depend. And you want to shoot for as many as you can possibly get. And it also depends on your niche too. Like if you're in a niche, like, I don't know, gardening. And for all I know, gardening could be a really competitive niche in SEO, but I don't think it is. If you're in that kind of a niche, you might only need, you know, five links, 10 links to really move the needle. But if you're competing against people ranking for things like marketing or SEO or anything in the marketing space, you're going to need hundreds, if not thousands of links. Like it's really dependent on your niche and again, your domain authority. So I know that doesn't exactly answer your question, but I hope that kind of helps. Yeah, for sure. So if you're targeting hundreds of backlinks, right, you know, the number of unique individual guest blog posts that you write is probably not going to be hundreds, plural, that link to one page, right? They're all separate and unique posts and probably not hundreds of podcasts. I mean, that would take you a while to be on hundreds of podcasts. So it sounds to me like the third strategy about the email outreach would actually be a significant portion of that. So can you also mention what the tools or techniques are for identifying the right people to reach out to and the right way to approach them in terms of not sounding spammy or stuff like that, but actually trying to deliver value and see if you can get them to link to your content? Yeah, sure. I have actually written hundreds of guest posts, believe it or not. <laughs> of course, it took me a couple of years, but that has been probably my number one strategy for building links, especially like highly relevant, highly targeted links from high domain authority sites. So what I like to do is try and do guest posts for anything over like domain rating 60 or something like that. And these are going to require relationships. Like you're not just going to reach out to somebody and say, hey, I want to post a guest post to your site. Like it's not going to work that way. They know the deal. They know that most people are going to be spamming them. They get hundreds of emails like that all the time. You're going to have to actually reach out and do something unique that they've never seen before, like offer to help them with something, do something for them for free, meet them in person at an event, uh, be on their podcast or be on a podcast that they really like and talk about how, hey, I was on this podcast. I know you said you're a fan of it. You know, maybe you want to check out my episode. Like do these different things to try and build strong relationships and getting those guest posts, the interviews, anything like that is going to be so much easier than doing the email outreach. And also make sure that when you are writing guest posts that they're really, really good. Like don't just spin out a 500,000 word article full of crap that you just threw together. Treat it as if it was a, an article on your own site and do a lot of work in it. And then you're going to get more guest posts. That link is going to be more valuable. Chances are that post is going to get linked to as well because of how high quality it is. There's just so many things, so many reasons to want to do that. But to get back to your initial question about the third strategy, so broken link building and also editorial linking. So basically you're reaching out to people who already have an article about something that relates to the article that you have and you say, hey, I made this resource. It might be a good uh, addition to your article, something like that. So in order to do that, what I would do is look for the top 100, top 500 blogs in maybe not necessarily the space that you're in, your exact industry, but industries that relate to that. 
So my industry is the RV niche. So anything related to travel or digital nomadism, even like family activity planning or like there's so many different ways that you can relate your niche to another industry. You can't limit yourself to just the blogs that are in your niche. Plus, a lot of the times it'll be hard to get guest posts or um, links from other blogs in your niche because they recognize you as a competitor and they're not going to link to you. So find that list. And literally, I just go on Google and type top travel blogs, top family blogs, top camping blogs, whatever. Type in top blogs in your space and you'll half the time you'll find lists. I'm more than that, like 99% of the time you'll find lists of blogs in that space that you looked at and just reach out to these people, get all of their email addresses, all their contact information, write each one of them. Like you can make a template. I use a tool called MailShake to send out emails and you throw all of your contact information, the emails and the names into MailShake. And then you write up an email template for what you're trying to say when you reach out to them. And then you can customize each individual email. So use the template but make sure you customize it so people know that you're not just sending them a templatized email that you're sending to hundreds of other people. And then when you do reach out to them, have something of value to offer them. Like don't try and get them to link to a page that you're obviously just trying to get links to to make money off of. Like give them something that's actually valuable, like a unique infographic they can use on their site or a guide to doing something really complex for their readers. Like, for example, I had somebody reach out to me. We had a post on the Wandering RV about the best barbecue portable grills. So he reached out to me and said, hey, I saw that you have this portable grill post on the Wandering RV. I really enjoyed it. We made this infographic that actually shows you the ideal temperatures to cook different types of food at, like different meats and whatever. And uh, it was this really, really neat infographic that he created that literally showed the exact temperature you needed for different styles of cooking. And I actually thought it was really neat. So I ended up adding it in there, even though I knew what he was doing. He was trying to build links. He's trying to build his domain authority. But he had something of value to offer there. It wasn't like he's just asking for a link, like it was something actually interesting and worth linking to. So let me ask you this, just if we're thinking about distilling this down to the highest leverage activities where people can generate the most results the quickest in terms of where they should be spending their time to start, you know, rocket fueling their SEO strategy. Because it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of different things that people can be doing. Some of them take a long time, as you've said, to accumulate, you know, to write hundreds of guest posts or to be on hundreds of podcasts or to do longer term things. If people are looking for, you know, what would be the most impactful thing in terms of where they should put their energy right now to have a finite amount of time and a finite amount of resources that can go into SEO, what are the biggest leverage points where they should put that first? So uh, it depends on where they're at in the business. So if you already have a high domain rating, then the answer is just simply find the keywords that are going to make you a lot of money create something epic around them, and then just put all of your effort into building links to those pages. Guest posting and podcasting is the best way to build links to money pages. If you have a lower domain authority and you can't really rank for things as easily, then definitely do the guest posting and podcasting still. I I really am a big advocate of that. But I would create one or two really strong skyscraper pieces that are worth linking to. And then maybe a third piece, another thing that we didn't talk about yet, is one of the best ways to build links is through original research. So if you can compile a study and do various statistics about your industry, 
So for example, on the Wandering RV, we have an RV statistics page and it literally just compiles RV statistics from all over the internet, like Statistica, Camping World, different news websites. And we just compiled all of those statistics into this report that showed all of the RV statistics. And now we're ranking number one or number two for RV statistics. And so what that does is journalists will go search on Google for RV statistics for an article that they're writing. They'll see our article, they'll grab a stat from it and then link back to us. You can also couple that with PR outreach and actually get more links from journalists that way. And that is one of the best ways to build links with the least amount of effort from the highest quality websites. Like you can get links from domain authority, 70, 80, 90 websites, like these different news outlets without even really reaching out to them or doing anything. They just kind of get picked up over time. And the earlier you do that, the sooner it's going to rank, the sooner it's going to get those links. So that's one of the first things that I would definitely do in addition to the skyscraper pieces. And then once you have the skyscraper piece, and typically this isn't going to be a money page, this is going to be just for building links, go after a keyword that has a decent amount of search volume and that has a high link trajectory. So meaning over time, those pages tend to accumulate links. So look at the number of links that the pages ranking for those keywords are getting and then shoot for the ones that they tend over time to accumulate links naturally. So write a skyscraper piece around that. Do the email outreach, the guest posts, and the podcasts. I, I know that's a lot, but at the same time, I mean, you can reach out to 50 different podcasts in one day. You can reach out to 50 or 100 different sites to guest post in one day. Like you can do most of this stuff within a week and then have a solid SEO strategy set up to get you going. Awesome. And then best practices on the skyscraper post in terms of word length, how should people be conceptualizing that if they're going to, you know, they do the research and they're going to write a better piece, but what's sort of an optimal word length? So like I said before, I don't really care that much about word length. It's more about the quality, not the quantity. But that said, I tend to at least match, if not exceed the average of the top five results. So if the top five results for a keyword have a thousand words, I want at least a thousand words on my page, if not like 1500. If the top five have 3000 words, I want at least 3000 words. And I don't necessarily try to just create this crazy long piece of content that's like two or three times the length of all the other pieces of content. Because at the end of the day, you got to remember, A, people are actually reading this and people's attention spans are short and they don't want to read 10,000 words on gardening unless they're like a gardening enthusiast and they're really looking for something like that. But a lot of the time people just looking for a quick answer to a quick question, they're not going to read through a 10,000 word article. And B, search engines tend to stick to what is already doing well. So if you create a 10,000 word article and everything else out there is like a thousand or 1500 words, that could actually hurt you more than help you. And I've actually had this happen where I was working on this insurance site and the one page that they wanted to create, I made it like 3,500 or 4,000 words and every other article on page one was like 600 words. And no matter what I did, I built links to it, I optimized it, I did everything I could possibly think of, I could not get on the first page of Google for that keyword. And I've realized after doing some research, the, the length could actually work against you. So in terms of word count, I would just shoot for at least the average of whatever the top five pages is. And then other ways you can have value, like I said, are adding images, original charts and graphs, screenshots, videos, 
make sure you're formatting as well. You're using headings and subheadings and bulleted lists and you're bolding and italicizing things that are important. Obviously, don't go crazy, but if there's a really important piece of information, go ahead and bold that. Break up your text with those images, like try and have an image or a video or a header or something that breaks up the wall of text every 300 words or so, maybe less, 150 to 300. And then make sure your sentences are kind of short. Your paragraphs are short, like one to three sentences long. And don't use complicated words or big words that make you sound fancy. Just type like you talk. And that'll actually help you with voice search as well. It's super good tactical information, man. Let me ask you one more just clarifying question with respect to quantity of content published on your website. Is it important to be regularly publishing new content on your website? Or is it a much better strategy to publish less content and just focus that on being a few skyscraper posts and then spend your time and energy getting the backlinks as opposed to creating ongoing new content? Less content all the way. The Wandering RV in the first two years we had the site, I think we had like five or seven articles that were bringing all of our traffic. We only published once every month or two, if that, and spent all the rest of our time promoting and building links. So the idea that you need fresh content on your site is completely obsolete. It's no longer a Google ranking factor whatsoever. Obviously, keeping your content up to date, I would say even at a certain point, it's better to update your old content than it is to create new content, especially if you're not ranking number one, number two, uh, because updating that content can improve your rankings. So yeah, just publish one or two pieces and then focus the next six months on link building if you need to, to get on page one for those articles. Okay. And then in terms of just to be super clear on the link building vis-a-vis the monetization strategy, one of the things that I heard you saying was that building links to a high quality piece of information that adds value that may not have any affiliate links or that kind of stuff in it. So people will want to link to it. It's not a sales page. Then from there, once you develop those links and you're getting the traffic to that page that's not being monetized, how do you then convert that traffic into a monetization strategy? Is that where the spoke uh, structure comes in? So it depends on what the page is. I wouldn't change the structure of the page. Like don't make it from an information page into a money page all of a sudden. Don't completely do a flip like that. But you can just turn on your ads. You know, So if you're ranking for a keyword and advertising is one of your ways of making money, turn on the ads on that page. So now you're displaying ads, now you're making money. If you have affiliate offers that relate to the content on that page, like if there's a product mentioned in there. So for example, on our site, we have a guide to RVing with pets. And when we launched it, we didn't have any affiliate links in it whatsoever. And then afterwards, we had a partnership with a company that makes temperature control monitoring devices for your RV. So you can tell what temperature it is in your RV at all times. And if it goes over or below a certain temperature, it'll alert you so you can get back to your RV and make sure that the temperature is okay and that your pet is okay. And we added that in afterwards. So you can relate your affiliate products to those pages even though they're information pages and you can still make money off of them. And then again, the other method is to do the spoke method. So your main page is just this big guide. You get lots of links to it. And then from within that page, you link off to your spoke pages, which are your money can be your money pages 
And then the links that you build to that main page are then going to improve the rankings of all of the spoke pages that you're linking to from that main page. Got it. So the spoke pages are your their internal links to other pages on your site that offer the affiliate links or whatever it is that are monetizable. Yes, exactly. Got it. Got it. Awesome, man. Um, can you also, I wanted to ask you about this term, latent semantic indexing, what that means and if people should be paying attention to that? Yeah. So I mentioned that tool Surfer SEO. It kind of is an advanced version of that. Latent semantic indexing sounds scary and confusing, but really it's just another way of saying related or synonymous keywords. So for example, RV is your main keyword. Synonymous keywords could be things like camper, travel trailer, fifth wheel, tow hitch, you know, all of these words that are related to that main keyword that tell Google what that page is about. Like one of the main examples that Google gives is, okay, so you've got a page ranking for cars. Well, is that car is the vehicle or is that car is the movie? And based on the other words on that page, it can tell which of those that is. So if you've got things like oil, engine, stuff like that, it's, it's leaned towards cars, the vehicle. But if it says, you know, I forget the, the people's names in that, but if it says, oh, Lightning McQueen or something like that, then okay, it's cars, the movie. So they help Google understand what your page is about. And they also help you rank for your main keywords and related keywords on that page because it gives Google more information about what your page is about. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And can you talk about in terms of a longevity strategy? I know that Google periodically adjusts these algorithms and there's all of these stories about people getting, you know, making all this SEO progress and then Google adjusts an algorithm and there's a dramatic change in their rankings and their traffic and all this other kind of stuff. And I would just love to get your take on that. I don't know if that has to do with, you know, black hat tactics versus white hat tactics where Google starts penalizing certain things that you probably could have predicted that they would penalize or, you know, or exactly how that works. But if you can just maybe speak to that concept of those algorithm adjustments and what the key strategy should be for developing a long-term strategy that likely will have minimal penalties by Google. Yeah, I personally don't really worry about Google updates at all because I don't use any black or gray hat strategies. So for those of you who don't know, black hat basically means you're using a strategy that's against Google's terms of service. So like PBNs or private blog networks are basically groups of websites owned by one person and they just add a link to your site from all of these other websites that they own. And it's not real websites. It's just literally they are there for the purpose of linking to another website to get it to rank on Google. Obviously, you're going against what Google wants. It's not organic. It's not natural. And that is a chance of getting penalized. So I would say do your best to stick to white hat tactics. I I guess technically guest posting can be gray hat, but as long as you're writing quality original content and you're linking to relevant pages, I really don't think you have anything to worry about there. Just make great content and build links that make sense that are valuable to people. This is my main way of looking at it. Awesome. And, and if you do that, I wouldn't worry about what Google changes. In the end of the day, you're using a search engine to get the best information possible. So if you're writing great content, then that's the best information possible. And if you have all these websites vouching for you that are links from natural high domain authority sites, then it just makes sense. 
Awesome, man. So let me ask you this specifically with respect, let's just say, to the podcasting strategy, right? Where you want to appear as a guest on other people's podcasts and then have their podcast website link in the show notes back to your website. So that's what we're going to do here, of course, as a great case study example. So let me ask you this follow-up question. You mentioned earlier in the interview that when you're getting these backlinks, you don't just want them to go to your main site, right? Like the wanderingrv.com. How does that work with respect to someone who does a podcast interview because they're speaking about their main business and this kind of stuff? And then a podcaster in the show notes might say, oh, go to Bill's website at thewanderingrv.com. Do you ask them, podcasters, to put in a specific URL that's not your main site? Like, What should people be doing in that regard when you know listeners of this show, let's say, start appearing on podcasts? How should they optimize the link placement, you know, or the request that they're making for a link placement in the show notes? Yeah, I mean, links to your main page obviously do still help, and links to the page that you're trying to rank for help more. I would say, in the majority of instances, you can ask the person who interviewed you to link to a specific page and try to mention that page in some way during the podcast. So, like, for example, I keep mentioning this RV insurance page. And if people want to check that out, then they go to the RV. You can say, hey, I know I mentioned the RV insurance page in the podcast. Can you link to that in the show notes so people can see what I talked about? So that's kind of a natural way of positioning it. As far as specific pages that you didn't mention in the podcast, you can ask. It might be a little bit more difficult to get them to do that just because it doesn't make sense. So yeah, just try and mention the page that you're trying to get a link to during the episode if you can. If not, then, you know, just take what you can get, <laughs> I guess is the best best way to look at it. Right. But that's a good suggestion, right? Which is to mention a particular page beyond your main homepage and then ask the host to link to that. Because what I always tell our listeners is that we're going to link in the show notes to everything that we talked about in this episode, right? So we're going to link the, you know, the SEO tools to be like, oh, what was that thing called again? How do you spell that? And of course, you know, we just link everything in the show notes. So, you know, people can just go to one place, they get all the links to everything we talked about. And of course, you know, we want to link to whatever the URLs were that you mentioned, we'll, we'll put all that in the show notes. And so I think that's a good strategy where you can just supply that to the host. Say, oh, by the way, you know, all those tools and websites that I mentioned on the show, here they are. And that actually helps them you know, create the show notes. That's like helpful. They don't have to re-listen to the episode and write everything manually and all that. So I think that's probably a pretty good approach, man. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's actually a great point. Definitely reach out to them and tell them because when I was doing my podcast, that was one of the things I hated because at the end I was like, yeah, I'll link to everything in the show notes. And then I had to go re-listen to it and find the link in the URL. And it was just such a pain in the ass. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's really awesome. good advice. That's awesome, man. Well, let me transition now. I want to ask you about one more topic before we move into the lightning round. And that is doing business with your spouse. I know that you and Kayla are both married and your business partners. And I want to ask you about that in terms of how you structure your life and your business and how that integrates with your marriage and all of that kind of stuff. Can you share some tips on doing business with your spouse? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you asked me about this. So number one, make sure you include the other person on all of your decision making unless they say they don't care about something and you can just make that decision on your own. There have been a lot of times where I just made a decision for the business without consulting her. And obviously she got very upset with that. 
And uh, I learned the hard way that I shouldn't just, because I'm the kind of person I'm just, I'm ready to pull the trigger. Like, let's go. Next thing, next thing. Boom, boom, boom. Whereas she's the kind of person who likes to think about things a little bit more. So anytime you're going to make a decision on something, make sure that you either get the approval from the other person or the other person says, yeah, in that particular field of the business, I don't care what you do. Like that's yours. You overtake that. Moving on from that, like that relates to that, have specific parts of the business that each person takes care of. So Kayla does a lot of the writing and a lot of the guest posting, whereas I'll do a lot of the SEO and the link building and the email outreach. So we have different portions of the business that one of us does or the other one does based on our area of expertise. Uh, let's see, what else? As far as how it actually looks like, so we both obviously work from home. We worked out of an RV together, both working on the same business. So we're very, very comfortable around one another. We're around each other constantly. You have to make time to separate work from business. So don't forget about date night. Don't forget that you don't have to constantly be talking about the business. Like go out and talk about something else. Make sure you guys have some other kind of hobby or something that you do together that you can talk about. So it's not just business 24-7. Because I mentioned earlier, part of my story was after we had lost our two biggest clients, I threw myself into work and that was all I did, all I thought about, all I talked about. And I did not leave room for anything else. So anytime we were hanging out, it was constantly like, what do you think we should do for the business? What do you think we should do about this? Blah, 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 blah. And it just really hurt our relationship because we didn't have anything to just relax and talk about and have fun with. It was just all work, work, work and no play. So definitely have some kind of hobby and things that you do outside of the business. Give yourself something else to talk about and take a break from it. I think those are the three main things. Yeah. Awesome. Really, really good tips. All right, Bill, at this point, are you ready to move into the lightning round? I don't know, Matt. I think so. I think we're good. Let's do it, man. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years that you would most recommend people check out? Yeah, I saw this question. I've been thinking about it. And this is a really difficult one for me because I have read dozens, if not hundreds of books. And uh, a lot of them have impacted me in really big ways. One that really changed my mindset somewhat recently is Why the Rich Are Getting Richer by Robert Kiyosaki. And also he wrote another book that really impacted me, which was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad is all about basically assets and liabilities, what an asset is, what a liability is. And a lot of people think, that liabilities are assets and assets are liabilities and they don't understand how to actually use that to make money. So that just kind of teaches you about money and how to handle it and make more of it. Um, so those two books are probably two of the biggest impactors. What is an app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd recommend? So I have a program called Asana, A-S-A-N-A. And it's kind of like Trello, if you've ever heard of that. It's just a task management software where you can put in your to-do list and keep track of everything. It's really helpful. Awesome. What is one content medium that you consume? Could be a podcast that you listen to regularly. Um, let's say other than Entrepreneur on Fire, because you already mentioned that one. Uh, a podcast or a blog or a YouTube show or something like that that you recommend people check out. Uh, yeah. So Benjamin Hardy, he was the number one writer on Medium for a long time. And he started his own website now, benjaminhardy.com. 
And his content is by far some of the best that I have ever read. It's all about personal growth and mindset and just how to look at the world in a better way. Highly recommend checking him out. And he's got some new books coming out this year that I'll be getting. Cool. If you could have dinner with any person that you've never met who's currently alive today, who would you choose and why? I don't know if I would give this answer had I thought about it more, but with the time that I did think about it, the person that came to mind was Elon Musk. And because I think he is just a freaking genius, you know, he's not perfect. There are aspects of his life that I wouldn't want in my own, but I think it would just be so fascinating to learn more about him and how he thinks. If you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Bill? Uh, I don't think I would do it if I had the option to. I really enjoy where I'm at today. I'm really happy with how things turned out. And uh, what I was ready to know at 18, I knew at 18. And it got me to where I am today. Fair enough. On this epic nomadic RV adventure, what were your top three favorite destinations that you experienced that you would most recommend people check out? So number one is Acadia National Park in Maine. It is just absolutely breathtaking. There are hiking trails, there are mountains, there's um, something called Cadillac Mountain, where if you stand at the top of it, and uh, watch the sunrise. You're actually the first person to see the sunrise in all of the U.S. because of the altitude that it's at and how far northeast it is. And it's just beautiful. There's so much to do, so much to see. And I actually proposed to Kayla at the top of that mountain. So, love wow, that place. yeah, how awesome! Yeah, it was really cool. It was funny actually. Uh, real quick story: we um, were up there and sitting there watching the sunrise. And I proposed to her as the sun was coming up and we had like 20 people behind us start clapping. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's amazing. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Other than that, I would say Savannah, Georgia is has a special place in our heart as well. We actually used to live in a city right outside there. And there's just so many cool things to see and do there. And it's beautiful. And I'm, I'm kind of cheating a little bit with this one, but Greenville, South Carolina, we've really fallen in love with it. And that's why we're living here now. So... Uh, love this area too. Awesome, man. That is an amazing city. It's super cool. And I'm so excited that we're only an hour away from each other. So after this podcast, you and I can chat and share schedules and figure out when uh, you and Kayla and I can uh, meet and grab a drink together. It'll be a blast. Yeah, absolutely, man. For sure. I love it, brother. Okay. Well, Bill, let people know how they can get a hold of you, contact you, check out your website, follow you on social media, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, where do you want people to go? So, um, like I said, I hate social media. I'm not really that active on it, but I am on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you want to look me up, uh, websites, I've got billwidmer.com and the wanderingrv.com. Our, our email is on both of those sites. So if you want to reach out, feel free to, and definitely reach out. You know, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions you might have or help you out in whatever way I can. So don't be afraid to talk with me. Awesome. All right, Bill, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, man. This was a blast. Yeah, Matt. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Good night, everybody. Be 
sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult.